0: Chris Biddle and welcome to Inside Agriturf. The penultimate episode for 2020. So it is fitting that I have the pleasure and the privilege of talking today with one of the industry's leading business personalities, not only of this year, but of the past 30 years. Robin Denny is the retiring Managing Director of Still GB although retiring might not be the right description for anyone who has enjoyed his and his company's hospitality at numerous dealer events and conferences over the years. Robin joined the company in 1990 as Finance Director and Company Secretary and was appointed as Managing Director in 2006 during which time he has overseen a massive growth in business. He formally retires at the end of 2020 and it will be a bittersweet moment for him. His record of achievements at Still will have been tempered by his inability, because of current restrictions, to say a proper goodbye and thank you to the staff and the numerous dealers who have underpinned his career at Still GP. And that will surely come in time. So Robin, many thanks for joining me today. And all of this must be a real disappointment to you.
1: Yeah, very much so. Staff and uh, the dealer network. I had planned. I had planned in January at our business conference. I talked to all the area managers, and I was going to do the ten territories for four days, so between May and October. Yeah, because I like to get to the coalface and you know yes. meet the amazing, resourceful characters that are out there. So that had been the intention but of course that's that's not, not going to happen at all or hasn't happened at all. Uh, so it's disappointing.
0: That, that's what that's what it is and um, it's obviously yeah. impacting on, on everything but uh, I'm sure that uh, when we start to ease off this you will find an opportunity to uh, meet up with a lot of people that you yeah. haven't got the opportunity to do so. Yes. Um, Robin, if we could go back to the beginning, yeah. um, you, you joined the company in 1990 as as finance director, yeah. uh, and and Peter Baker, uh, the late Peter Baker was the MD. Mm. Now I yeah. I I knew Peter when he was with Home Light <coughs> and he was what you might know, of, and the, as a character, wasn't he? he not, Certainly he was wasn't he not afraid to take risks. So you, as a Scottish chartered accountant, coming into yeah. the company, and a freewheeling and sometimes unpredictable businessman, uh, what were the dynamics like when it came to taking financial decisions? Was it an interesting process? Well,
1: yeah, it was. Um, well, I mean, Peter didn't have any formal education, but he was highly experienced and a very intelligent man. And although we're very different characters, there was there was a there was a mutual respect and actually a quite a deep fondness for each other you know that built up I would be I'd be making some sort of clever intelligent suggestion to him about something and he would go like this and he would rub (laughs) his tummy and this was him saying my gut feel was different from what you're saying he did that he did that every now and then so gut feel was important and he of course he had a lot of experience yes Um, I would give him practical quick financial information and he wasn't used to that because his pre- my predecessor was one of these boring accountants that Peter would say what happens if the Deutsche Mark moves 10% and he'd go away for, uh, this was the way Peter would put it, he'd go away for a month and come back and say if it if it moves that much there'll be a difference of one million three hundred four pounds sixty three. He didn't get that from me and um, he got <laughs> quick calculations you know just on a piece of paper yes. and he, he loved to say to me can you do me a fag packet <laughs> you know a fag packet calculation and um, so oh, <coughs> it that worked well yeah um, well, there
0: were many stories about peter not the least of which was when the wind blow came <laughs> in uh, before you joined the company
1: yeah and,
0: uh, he apparently jumped out of the um, <laughs> A dentist chair uh, when it was all happening and having a yeah. wisdom tooth and said I've got to get back to work but uh, yes. so that was him and we miss him greatly. Yeah.
1: The other thing about Peter was he he occasionally found um, he found it much easier to prove a large sum of money you know say like a 100,000 pounds you say wow well, we better do it but if you were if you went in to talk to him about 500 pounds or a thousand pounds he Your could relate problem. to that and he was struck he had a big battle sometimes <laughs> yeah um, but we never had a serious disagreement or an argument and i know i've referred to him playing poker but there were occasions where there was one time we needed to remove the mezzanine floor from the old building at Woking for to allow a company to rent it and they wanted us to pay and it was five thousand pounds and he said oh i'm not doing that what's their phone number i want to play poker and I said, Peter, this isn't about poker. Germany are desperate for us to get rid of this building, and five thousand pounds is is nothing. Yeah. And, and he looked a bit disappointed. He said, Oh, I suppose you're right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, so yeah. So when you joined in in
0: 1990, the the, the turnover of Steel uh, GB was was about 17 million pounds. Um, yeah. And. <coughs> In 2016, you reached this magic uh, £100 million. I, I guess uh, the moment you reached that, a few corks popped today.
1: Well, it was the last working day of the year, and there was quite a lot of people not around. The warehouse were in. I wrote in my diary, what a moment. Um, I phoned all the old boys that you know, you know, Norman Robinsons, Andy and You'd think they'd won the lottery. They, they just <laughs> could relate to it, you know. So there weren't many people around, Darren Summerlee, Paul Brennan. Paul Brennan, as our uh, head of operations, he, he, he rarely smiles. But as he walked towards me that, that morning, I'll never forget it. We talked about it yesterday, actually, but the big grin on his face, you know, that we'd, we'd achieved a 100 million was quite was really quite special. And we celebrated in January. We had a conference in Manchester, internal conference at Wartram Hall, and then we had a trip to Viking and um funny that every now and then someone would shout 100 million they would just shout (laughs) it (laughs) that was the way we celebrated
0: what what do do you put that down to obviously you had an expanded product range you had more dealers um presumably you were taking a bit of share from competitors Uh, where did that growth come from do you think robin
1: we did increase our market shares a bit a little bit and that's always a key item for germany an example of that how that works as a barometer is when in 2008, when we had the recession, the Cutquick business just dropped like a stone immediately. And, and they said, what's going on here? But As long as we had the same market share, they understood the situation. I think the growth is, is down to a long term introduction of domestic products. Because when I joined, you know, it was much more chainsaws. As peter would have said we're here to sell bloody chainsaws you know because yes. that's the business so the, uh, so the homeowner business
0: really yeah and, and and so obviously that that's grown exponentially uh, uh, over over the years obviously uh, robin you and i grew up in a in a time when the relationship between manufacturer and dealer was fairly straightforward but as as we know consumers are buying products in a, in in a vastly different way than they would have done say 10 15. Uh, 20 years ago. Now that's forced you into making some significant changes to your dealer agreements. Obviously the, with the dealers, um, any changes like that might have they might have tear their hair out and, and, and jump yeah. out of their pram a little bit. How do, you, how do you deal with that with with people that you've probably known and, and count mm-hmm. as friends over the years? Yeah
1: well, I think you, you discuss it in advance with the dealers ideally face to face you explain the logic and the reasoning behind the change. And, you know, we're not in an industry that changes that much or that fast, but just by going through it, discussing it, you explain to them how they can adapt and how it will make them more successful in the changing market environment. And, and I put myself in their shoes because they're, they're very resourceful people, the dealer network, I've seen everything before they can handle change. They don't necessarily like it initially, but good, good conversation. You can work through a
0: change. Was this you know? new strategy rolled out internationally across the steel
1: company? <laughs> yes, yes. A lot of these things are are driven at group level. You know, we're dealing with, we're often dealing with worldwide policies. Quite a lot of them more and more are coming from legal judgments within maybe even one specific country in Europe. It could be, a judgement in France means that, you know, the whole steel group, pan-European, has to think. Well, if that's happening there, it's going to lead on to the the, the rest of Europe. You know, we, we we have to think it through carefully, and then communicate with the dealers why we're doing it, the logic of it, and how they will benefit from it. It's still, it's and, still, and what, sorry, with direct shipments, you've referred to that, haven't you? Um, yes. Where we are doing some. One of the things we're doing is we're selling at the full recommended retail price. We're not doing anything uh, unusual there, and um, it's now it's being rolled out in other countries, uh, Germany and France, for example. The whole direct uh, yes. approach. Yes.
0: Yeah. Yes. Just to explain that that uh, change in policy allowed you as a company to <coughs> ship products directly to customers. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and and obviously this was a big change, and it, it probably sounded more uh, impactful and serious than it than it actually was. Yeah, do, yeah. do you agree? It's only a,
1: it's only a small part of our business, very yes. small.
0: And, and and still has always been a, a people focused company. You you've always, I think, made it your business to uh, make sure you connect closely with staff and for dealers. And yeah. and, and you, I know, Robin, have established many. Personal relationships amongst dealers, um, yes, on the back of a, a commercial relationship, a business relationship. Um, yeah. d- does that hinder, or, or uh, when you uh, the going gets tough or, or conflicts arise, doing business between friends, but people who have become friends?
1: <clears throat> no, I don't think so. Um, you know, you, you, I discuss it with them why the change has to happen, and how we together can cope with that change. Um, yeah, there can be some conflict, but, uh, you know, there's, there's a deep mutual respect and trust is so important, you know, that really wins through when there's, you know, when there's difficult things to change, yeah. the trust between steel and the dealer network. As you know, this is a, a close knit and,
0: and one might say slightly conservative trade. But, but do you detect a gradual acceptance amongst dealers of the need to change in this rapidly changing retail age?
1: Yeah, I, I do see a gradual acceptance. It's, it can be gradual, especially when maybe the founding dealer is nearer my age than, than the, <laughs> the next generation. But more and more, some people might have thought the young people wouldn't want to come into the businesses. But uh, I, I feel that they, they do, the next generation are already in there working hard and, uh, you know, adapting their businesses, maybe not at great speed, but adapting it to the the modern retail world. Uh, Robin, it's
0: always seemed to me there's always been this discussion about whether (laughs) sons and daughters would come into the industry, but I think with the advent of new technology and digital technology, which gives them quite a scope to um, practice some of the, their usual skills yeah. there's probably more attraction to coming into a, a family business than it might have been in the past.
1: Yes I think that's true, very true yeah. Nick Burrows was using a, a slide to do with annual, with annual budgeting and it was showing that a lot of the sort of chains of retail f- com- outlets are not as flexible as the, you know, individual dealers, individual dealers can change their approach quite quickly whereas, yes. you know, and, and and survive because of it.
0: Yeah. I mean, there was, interestingly, there was one uh, outdoor power equipment dealer that I know that took on uh, the manager of, I think, a B&Q store and yeah. uh, he was saying that to change the, the seasonal policy of someone like B&Q is like turning around an oil tanker. Uh, they just didn't yeah. have the uh, facility to be able to change their marketing strategy at a, at the drop of a hat uh, and that's yes. normally because of the weather isn't it with the weather turns bad or the ter- weather turns good you need to be able to, uh, yep. to switch and change direction and, yes. and leaders have that ability don't they They do, yeah. I I don't suppose any conversation we have just at this moment in time would be complete without reference to Brexit. Within this industry, we've we've always had two twin factors, if you like. One is the weather and one's the economy. And of course, added to those two, now we've got the pandemic (coughs) and we've got Brexit yes uh, you, you, you and i can't do anything about the weather we can do very little about the economy um, and, and as far as the covid is concerned we just hope it all gets out of the system sooner rather than later uh, we, but with brexit and we're talking right in the middle of them trying to sort out a deal i presume that yeah. still has got contingency plans to for supplies uh, existing stock and, and future supplies whatever the outcome
1: yes still steel group will give us their full support and uh, you know we already have a buffer stock i'm not concerned about that really so so you see enough
0: uh, stock just at the moment going through into the into the season i mean obviously the yep. season for you is two seasons you've got the wood wood season shall we call it and then yes. you've got the grass cutting season into next year
1: yeah well we've got a lot of forward orders and everything's it's been a surprisingly tremendous year. We're way ahead of our target, and uh, it's not letting up. Yeah. Warehouse are very, very busy every day. You um, know, it used to be a million pound day was very, very unusual. I think we'd maybe had five or six in our history, but we've had quite a few this month. Yeah, It's looking very good. I think I'm
0: right in saying that Still acquired the Viking brand something like yeah. 20, 25 years ago. And yeah. I, I do know talking to uh, dealers over here, for many, many years they they pushed for an integration of the Steel and Viking uh, brand yeah. name because they thought it would make their life easier. It, it seemed to take an awful long time.
1: Why was that? Well, I was with Steel in, in 1992 when, most unusually for Steel, they acquired a business, and that was Viking. I think they were. There was mutual friendships between the families that, that, that ran Viking and Steel, but when they when they bought it, it, it wasn't. I wouldn't say the quality was very high in the products, so that was one reason it remained Viking. It also was a name that was very well known in the large markets of France and Germany. They were in a small factory in the centre of kustein downtown, and they moved to lamb camp and well, you've been there to the bit, to the big field where that gives them the scope for a lot more expansion which is constantly happening. Also there's a sort of hidden loyalty to the name Viking in that area where yeah. there was and uh, the employees there, as you might recall, uh, all the local farmers who can't work in the winter, they work in the production factory. so there's a strong attachment to the Viking name. In the meantime, the quality was improving constantly to match the steel brand. Quality has improved tremendously, and you, know, you could say we perhaps should have changed to steel name earlier than we did. And, uh, agree and, with
0: and how has that all settled down? Are the dealers happy and you as a company happy with it now being one brand? Yeah. Now, Robin, um, I've been fortunate enough to, to go on one or two steel uh, press yeah. trips and they are uh, or have been I mean uh, we can't do them or you can't do them just at the moment uh, they are if I might say stuff of legends it, it's the sort of thing that uh, manufacturers don't do quite so much these days because uh, there used to be time when you used to have 40 or 50 dealers in a in a coach and, and, and trundle them around Europe for a week yeah. um, and obviously the time doesn't allow for that now but obviously that you have a much more uh, rapid uh, visits now but but uh, what particular <laughs> recollections of any of those those trips
1: any uh, memorable moments
0: uh, there were so many, many, so, can many
1: repeat. <laughs> so many characters lots of fun with them the viking trips were particularly uh, memorable in that way in the main street in the town there's a battzen restaurant that was run by the father of of bernadette who was the tour guide. At Viking, and he he was an eccentric, very eccentric man, and we used to take the dealers there, and it was just a, a mad evening of, he played old gramophones, he had a train that went round the top of the ceiling, and oh, just it was just a crazy night, that was yeah one of the most memorable. But um, it's just seeing the characters because they have they have lots of fun amongst themselves, and they're away from their business pressures, yeah, and they're realizing also over a few beers that they all have the same business pressures and the same issues. So it's quite a therapeutic for them, I would say.
0: And um, also there's quite a lot of reciprocal business done quietly on those. Yes, business,
1: isn't there yes, it is. And um, one of the things I always remember when you were asking me and I read your notes, on these trips at the formal dinners, um there's always a formal dinner in the middle of the week. Our German friends, particularly Jochen Burant, when he's there, He says, We hope you have enjoyed seeing, and he uses this expression, behind the curtain. And I think that's what it's the most exciting thing for me, because behind that, and I'm sure you'd agree with this constantly modest facade that Steele has, you know, very modest company in its image, the real picture is an enormously powerful, organised, successful company of the highest quality, very long serving, loyal staff. And investing constantly in future success yeah. and that's what they don't show normally yes. when you come behind the curtain behind you, the see, you see this uh, you see yes. this clearly for the, the yes. dealers do yeah it's, it's a nice phrase
0: <laughs> I, I do remember one memorable moment from a trip I was on we were in a coach with 40 dealers going through the forests and stopped for a comfort break and everybody piled out of the coach. And there was some poor woodman just up in the woods trying unsuccessfully to try and start his steel chainsaw. Right. And within minutes, he had 40 dealers in <coughs> his shoulder trying to uh, sort out his problems and probably giving 40 different <laughs> <laughs> remedies. Yeah. But uh, it was a very surreal moment, I have to right. say. Uh, Robin, looking back, what what do you regard as your your proudest moment or the most important
1: decision that
0: you've taken at at Steele? A lot of
1: the decisions are really taken at group level. You know, they decide what we're doing with most things. So I would actually say, we mentioned people focus and I have that. I would say the most important decisions that I've been making are all around recruitment. Well, getting the right dealers on board and getting the right staff. You know, this expression, get the right people on the bus at all levels. Yes. I've got a a very deep respect for the HR function, which has been here since 2002. Prior to that, I was doing all the HR. But I always get involved uh, in interviews, involved in the decisions and recruitment, interviews, internal promotions, like Wayne Stone, for example. And I've actually I've recruited every member of my senior management team you know from here, Hans Fairley in 1996 right through and we've got a very strong team and uh, it's good to be involved maybe it sounds a uh, it doesn't sound right to you but I would say the most important decision is getting the right people because <laughs> once we've got them they never want to leave no I think that's
0: that's admirable because having the right team is is actually key to pretty, everything and uh, the fact that they communicate and get on with one another and and so on going back a few years you were were president of the aea the agricultural engineers association which obviously covers the whole gamut of agricultural machinery and grass machinery and and turf care machinery
1: what insights did you gain
0: when uh, you had this wider perspective on the industry robin
1: what i was going to say initially was i'm still actually on the board of the which is eight years on from then and I looked at, at some of the records, and it's normally three years, but both uh, Roger and then uh, Ruth have just said, oh, no, we'd like you to just stay on, and everyone agrees. So, well, it was an interesting period because um, I was under, it was under the leadership of, of Roger Lane Knott, who you, yes. you know from your trip, a retired submarine commander who had a certain style um, about him. And then Ruth took over, and she's, she's quite different in style, but equally as successful, so I think uh, she, she, you know, she's keeping the high quality values at the AEA. and the most important thing at the AEA is their people. They're their major asset, uh, and they work very quietly behind the scenes, and they work very effectively, and they provide a, a great deal of support to the industry. And at board level, it's uh, it's very good to mix with with industry colleagues, both in the power tool and in the farming. Uh, industry because like I said about the dealers when they're on their trips and they realize that they've all got the same issues similarly the issues uh, that the other companies in the industry have are, are, are very similar yeah. So, yeah you're just learning from all these different people all the
0: time and I know when I was a, a dealer I, I used to have a favourite product or products within the the, the, the range that we offered? Uh, if it was, it was a lawnmower and somebody had a 200 or 300 pound price ticket in their eyes, I would steer them towards one particular model. Of all the years, is, is, there, a, is there a product from the steel range that you uh, regard with
1: fondness? Yeah, there is. Uh, well, it has to be battery, that's the first thing, <laughs> uh, in practical terms. And it has to be a hedge trimmer. And as I said, cordless, of course, to avoid cutting through the cord. Yeah. Um, so it's the HSA fifty-six. I go back yeah. a long time in my gardening history. My father had a, a, a particularly lovely garden in Glasgow. Um, he grew chrysanthemums and won a Scottish Cup. He then grew roses and alpine plants. But I, I used to do a lot of gardening for neighbours, paid gardening, and there was a lot of hedges around and uh, I used to use my hand shears constantly and then I I worked uh, in a landscape gardening business in the summer at university time and I would still be using the shears so uh, when you use a hedge trimmer now it's just like Ah. it's just like a knife through butter isn't it easy easy far more far more easy so um, it would have to be the HAC 56 hedge trimmer yeah oh excellent
0: and I guess really <coughs> because of, of that ease of use uh, you, you pull in a yeah. lot more consumers who suddenly find it's not the hard work that they'd always been told or thought that it was from experience so uh, yeah. Yeah. yeah
1: definitely
0: Robin No, 2020 um, might not have afforded you the farewell you wanted obviously but the level of business that you've done this year uh, during this strange season uh, which I, I see might well reach 120 million. Um, Has that compensated for the disappointment of not saying uh, goodbye in some small way? Yeah.
1: Um, Yes, it has, yeah. We're over 120 now, by the way. Um, It's amazing because when we drew up our forecast when COVID hit us in lockdown nine months ago, we really expected to be behind our targets, you know, not ahead, as our dealers often say, the grass and hedges always grow, Yeah. and they're right.
0: And, and, the, and the leaves fall off the trees, and nature, yep. nature goes round and doesn't yes. have COVID.
1: No, absolutely right.
0: Oh, yeah. uh, so, so Ron, and really lastly, and thank you really for your time today. It's been brilliant. Pleasure. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Great catching up. What next? <clears throat>
1: well, I've had a kind of mini trial of it in some ways by, by working <laughs> from home quite a bit. More time at home, more time in the garden with Liz. Seeing a bit more of of my son John and his girlfriend, uh, they live in Farnham, yeah. and we don't we don't see much at the moment of them. And my daughter Katrina, in, who's in Dubai still, uh, with her husband Craig. So try to get over. I don't really particularly like Dubai, but uh, I, w- I would like to spend more time over there with them. And my wife's very keen. Liz is very keen to travel more. Obviously, yeah. we'll need to wait to see what happens with COVID. And I would like to spend more time. I've got, I think, I've got a school reunion every year, 34 years in a row. There's 10 of us. Yes. they are having monthly Zoom meetings now, which Brilliant. was a bit of a rabble at first, but it's got <laughs> a bit more controlled now. Um, so more time in Glasgow and Scotland. I really love the West Coast of Scotland, uh, the islands. Particularly, I'm very, very fond of the island of Egg, yes. which is near Sky. And uh, so more travel, really. And,
0: and no doubt, catching up with a lot of dealers on the way through.
1: Yeah, I'm sure we'll. Got a
0: lot of cu- cups of coffee to consume or anything
1: else. Yeah, yeah. I had my one dealer visit uh, of the year. Uh, we were in going to a place called Dunning because Liz had some old relatives there from records, and uh, we we saw James Marshall. You know, Marshall's yes. gun machinery. He was yeah. in the town. He came straight down by car oh. to see us, and. Took us to meet, well, i would met his wife before and we had a couple of hours chat. So he's a very a lovely gentleman, James. Yes, that, yes, he That is. was my dealer visit for the year. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, look, Robin, yeah, I, I've been a steel dealer and a trade journalist, and um, so I've had a long association with steel. So I'd, I'd like to lastly thank you for your friendship and support over the years and, and obviously wish you and Liz very happy Christmas and uh, best wishes to you both for the coming years. Thank you very much, the same to you and to Trish. Well, that really was a delightful and frank account by Robin of a wonderful career. One where his ability to communicate openly with dealers when policy changes had to be made as a result of market conditions, more than often resulted in a meeting of minds. And many of you will know that Nick Burroughs takes over as interim MD of Still GB in the new year before the arrival of Kay Green, who will succeed Robin, and she takes up her post on the 1st of March. So I need to say no more than to wish Robin and his wife Liz a very happy retirement. And I'm sure that they will be in the midst of the agriturf social scene for some years to come. I'm Chris Biddle. Thanks for joining me and this is Inside Agriturf